What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sacasa, and I pray that you are having an amazing day today. Joining me today on the podcast is Scott Weeman, who joins me to talk about his ministry, Catholic in Recovery, which he started coming after his own journey with addictions and alcoholism specifically. So in today's episode, Scott shares openly about his journey towards recovery and how both AA and a vibrant young adult ministry at his parish played key roles in this journey towards sobriety. In today's show, we talk about the recovery process, the need for mentorship. Scott walks us through the 12 steps and how he aligns them perfectly with the sacramental life of the church. And we also discuss where to begin if you yourself are struggling with an addiction, what family members can do with people who they know and love that have an addiction. And at the end of the episode, we break down that beautiful serenity prayer, which has so much wisdom in it. When the show is done, please leave a comment or write a review on Apple Podcasts, or simply just hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I enjoy conversing and listening to my listeners. So God bless you, everybody. Let's get into this conversation with Scott Weeman. Scott Weeman, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah, praise the Lord. Well, I mean, you're out in San Diego. I'm here in New Orleans. You, you want to swap for the day? You, you want to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing I've learned, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm not unfamiliar with inclement weather. But uh, I, one thing that I, I, I've realized since living here is that I'm, I shouldn't be the one to initiate conversations about weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had actually did interview somebody else, a friend of mine who's a uh, the principal at a school out in uh, in San Diego, and uh, and he was telling me how hard it is that his office is you know a mile from the beach, and uh, that he can just kind of walk to it whenever he feels like it, and and it's you know seventy two degrees kind of year round. Um, yeah, he was he was having a hard time you know convincing me that it was a <laughs> that it was a real challenge for him out there in San Diego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure, especially with your folks out in in Wisconsin, I'm sure they they uh, you can't initiate any conversation like you said. So no, and and I've gotten very soft. So when I tell them that it's like fifty-five degrees and it's getting cold, then uh, they take no pity on me. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's awesome. Well, the first place I like to start today is really just congratulations on winning the OSV challenge. How does that feel? Thank you. Yeah, it feels great. It was I think a month ago now mm-hmm. uh, that we took home one of three grand prizes, a hundred thousand uh, dollar award for winning the OSV challenge. And, uh, yeah, we're, I mean, it's work has been very busy as a result. We were very busy heading into the challenge and the six week accelerator that was involved with it provided an opportunity to, I would say, you know, on a kind of a business level, hand off and delegate some things to leaders and people who are ready to take, step up into positions to move the, you know, the overall day-to-day mission of our of Catholic and recovery forward. And then, um, really working on a higher level of, you know, projecting the next several years of where are we going? What is Catholic and recovery going to look like? And they'll also, you know, have the, you know, the business skills and acumen and networks uh, to, to make it all happen. And so the OSB challenge provided a really awesome outlet to pause, take a, a bigger look at how we can best serve individuals and families impacted by addiction. And, uh, and $100,000, uh, you know, to, to make that actual reality. Uh, it's very exciting. So yeah, that that, that yeah, prize been, money doesn't doesn't hurt, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I I love the OSV challenge. I I had uh, uh, Samantha Pavlock who uh, with Fem Catholic. I had mm-hmm. her on the show here recently, and we were talking about it. And and I, I'm just I just think it's 
I mean, when I first heard about it last year, I mean, really, I was like, wow, what an innovative, I know that's a word innovation, but that's really the right word. What an innovative way of kind of, kind of giving ministries a shot in the arm and genuinely being invested in not just good ideas, but sustainable ideas in terms of saying, okay, well, how do we take a good idea? Because I've seen this many times, you know, I've, I've, I've been Catholic all my life. I kind of started practicing my faith in college. I've been involved in ministry pretty much my entire adulthood. And I've seen people come and go with great ideas, you know, great idea for this. Oh man, that's awesome. Let's, let's do that. Let's kind of make that happen. And then within a couple of months or a couple of years, it just falters and it doesn't go. So I've seen a lot of great ideas come and go. Um, that I think what the OSV challenge is really aiming at is saying, okay, how do we find these ideas? But then really the accelerator program, getting the, the 12 finalists or semifinalists, I forget which, exactly how it is, those 12 standing to, to get them in this program, to help them, um, to think about, you know, what they're doing and get business leaders and mentors and individuals who can really kind of offer some some assistance and guidance, all for, for the good of the church. I mean, I'm just like, Man, all right, good good Catholic ministries do exist. Like, like <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, there. I would say there are many levels to level, many levels of fruit to the OSB challenge that I found, and I would say that Samantha and others who were participating would probably repeat the same thing. In that, I've been I've been I started Catholic in recovery about five or six years ago through my, the passion of my own experience, which we're sure to get into. Yeah, sure. And um, and it can be you know there's a lot of sacrifice that take that you know can be very lonely kind of. Um, position to be in, starting something, having a vision for something that doesn't yet exist. And, you know, there can be challenges, hurdles along the way. And, and so being able to connect with others who know those, those challenges, who can, we, you know, connecting in community with other creative and innovative individuals doing different things, but all kind of for the fruit of, or for the sake of building the kingdom of God was a very, very refreshing, rewarding. And so 24 semifinalists were uh, participated in this, the accelerator. 12, then 12 finalists were chosen after we did a pitch and put a business plan together. And then we produced a, live, a pitch video and did a live Q&A session. And man, even just in that, like, you know, having to really dive into some of those challenging questions that, you know, reg- you know we face on a regular basis, but um, being honest with ourselves and, you know, coming to the conclusion that, uh, you know, there's so much more to dive into, to build on. And um, just being honest with our challenges, I think was really helpful. It just like in recovery, you know, it's a very simple first step of, you know, I got to admit, you know, what, what's going on with, you know, get honest with ourselves. And, uh, and so the OSB challenge provided a lot of great tools around building the business. And, uh, we've got some really great ideas for moving forward over the next year. Okay. So before we really get into your story, I have to know, uh, father Josh Johnson says it was all him. He's, <laughs> he's a good friend of um, mine. And, and we were together when he found out that, that you guys had won. He was like, Whoa, really? That's my guy. <laughs> so, so he yeah. wants to take all the credit for it, but, uh, but I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the opportunity to set the record straight here. <laughs> I'll give father Josh all the credit he wants to take. He, <laughs> go for it, father Josh. I'll, I'll take, we'll, we'll take the money. He can take the credit. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Scott. That's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about um, Catholic and recovery, and um, and really your journey. Um, I, I, in preparation for for our interview today, I spent some time on your website, and really appreciate um, your honesty with the way that you are articulating your personal journey and road with recovery. Um, so, really, I guess I'm going to kind of give you freedom here. I mean, you can start certainly there in terms of your own journey, or what eventually got you to starting Catholic and recovery. I mean, I want to talk about both of those. So really, I kind of give you the freedom to, to start whichever way yeah, is best. 
Yeah, I'll start with my story, which kind of sets up Catholic in recovery and, um, you know, won't get too in depth and have gotten good at making it brief, but yet impactful. You take your so. time. It's an hour podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you're talking to a therapist also, so I'll try not to turn it into a session. So you're okay. I do appreciate that too. <laughs> and I also appreciate the back and forth nature. But so I grew up in Wisconsin, as I mentioned, and uh, in a culture where I would say drinking very uh, prevalent. But uh, and that was, you know, part of part of my you know family and such. But grew up nominally Catholic as well. Baptized for the first sacrament, Eucharist, reconciliation, confirmed in high school, um, but nominally Catholic in the sense that we went to Mass on Christmas and Easter, a few extra credit weekends a year, but not a regular part of our of our lives. Although, you know, good Midwestern morals and values and such that um, it kept me pretty rooted and grounded. 17 years old, I took my first drink of alcohol. I was, you know, um, active in sports and school and debate, policy debate in high school. Uh, my first drink, I remember very vividly in that uh, my friend who handed it to me said, I don't think so much about what this is going to taste like. It's not going to taste great at first, but just think about how good it's going to make you feel. And, uh, you know, fast forward nine years later at 26 years old, I didn't care what it tasted like. I just knew that it was going to help me no longer feel the way that I was feeling. So, you know, over the course of nine years, alcohol began socially, you know, using it socially kind of as a means to, um, you know, get connected with people and have a good time. But it didn't take long for that to turn addictive in nature where I was, you know, going back to it and uh, loved the way that it made me feel, you know, supplementing that with other drugs, marijuana, some, you know, pain medications and such, and really anything that I could get my hands on to some extent. Uh, And so as my behavior kept getting worse and worse, rather than raising my behavior to meet my standards, I simply lowered my standards in many ways, which, you know, in short time, uh, I created some challenging relationships among family members and, and very close friends. Uh, I, I earned a debate scholarship. I was a, a, a one of policy debate scholarship to go to school in um, in New York City, Pace University, where I went, and that's when really my you know I had this sense of freedom, which allowed me to drink whenever I wanted to, and you know got into all sorts of belligerent behavior. Whereas I you know put school and debate and you know even family relationships and things aside soon, just in order to pursue you know the feeling and really the high of, of you know, this kind of social party life that I had had no idea that I was becoming more and more really bonded to these <clears throat> behaviors, substances, et cetera. So three semesters later, I lost my scholarship, my, my debate scholarship, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. I got a DUI after uh, a graduation, high school graduation party that I was attending. And, uh, you know, things were just spiraling. I was, you know, in a very dark place, um, didn't have any of the, you know, I guess, awareness at the time to realize that, you know, I was just pointing the finger of every, everything was other people's problems. And, you know, I was comparing myself to my friends who were accelerating in life and graduating, doing great things. And, you know, I found myself really stuck. Second DUI when I was 21 years old brought me to a treatment facility uh, in Wisconsin and where I stayed for 15 days, stayed sober for about eight months afterwards, but really just white knuckling it and um, not, you know, participating in any kind of recovery program or or a group or fellowship. I did some therapy and um, that was helpful, but I also was dishonest even in therapy in a lot of ways. And, you know, had this intention of this, this idea that I got to be too young to be an alcoholic. This is, you know, I'm seeing people around me drink in similar ways and college atmospheres and such. And, you know, they could go to school the next day, whereas I was not and really having a hard time functioning. And, um, but I kept making these excuses or I kept making rationalizations. In fact, there was, uh, I went in, in the treatment program that I was in, 
for 15 days, I, you know, was kind of jotting some notes and, and introspective in many ways, good intentions. But, you know, it was like, you know, maybe I'd write a book. And, you know, if I was going to write, if I was going to title that book, it probably would have been titled, If You Had My Problems, You'd Be an Alcoholic Too. <laughs> and so just, you know, that was just really descriptive of, of the mindset that I was in, the attitude that I carried. Name, and, name um, that then, because I think some people don't understand that. I mean, like, how would you describe that mindset? I mean, you kind of labeled it in the book, but what specifically? I mean, it seems like you're talking about a party scene, wishing that, uh, you know, comparing yourself to others, thinking that others... Uh, why can't other, why, why are other people still able to get up the next day and go to work or all, all these other things? I mean, I mean, what exactly were, did you mean by that in the title? Yeah. So in, um, you know, just the sense of, I was just writing down all the, you know, kind of making a little bit of biography or just kind of jotting down some notes of the biography, but really just, you know, casting blame and taking no responsibility. And, and certainly, you know, I can point to, and I will, I will describe addiction as oftentimes starting off as really just a, a way that we cope or compensate for things that are challenging in life or, or even not even challenging, but just, you know, changes in, in emotion and such. And that gets out of control, you know, where the problem and the solution becomes a problem in itself. And, and that was my case. So, you know, alcohol and drugs did for me what I couldn't do for myself. It provided a sense of escape and, uh, and in some ways a sense of belonging, but of course, with also with grave consequences. And, you know, when I was continuing to chase that, despite, you know, whether it was high or low in my life, uh, that just becomes a problem in itself. And so what is often, you know, descriptive of addiction, and this is my case too, is a great sense of self-centeredness and self-pity. You know, it takes many different forms, self-pity, pride, um, you know, really just self-seeking motives in in most of the things that we do. And so, um, you know, after that time, eight months or so, I, I fell in love with a woman who was a great Catholic, great Catholic girl. And, uh, she, it was, you know, shortly after that time that we got together that I started drinking again and and using drugs and, you know, with me, which is different. Excuse me to interrupt you, but you're, you're how old at this point? You're like 23, 22? Yeah. Like 22 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So like five years. I mean, you said you started drinking at 17, but really Mm -hmm. kind of when you moved to New York, the 18, 19, kind of that, those three semesters that year and a half is when it really spiraled out of control. And, uh, so, so we're a few years into this now. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and you know, I would have, I would have had a hard time to define myself as an alcoholic at this point too. You know, I, I was making, you know, having the, I had the idea that I could drink like a gentleman, you know, I could figure it out. And uh, that was a great sense of my pride. And also probably, uh, mm, I would say manifestation of my lack of faith in many ways too, where it was all about me. You know, if it was going to do something in life, it was going to be upon my willpower, my strength, and, uh, you know, at a certain point that just ran out, that just was clearly not going to be the case, but it took me a lot of pain before I realized that a lot, of, a lot more pain and darkness, you know, in addition to a couple of DUIs and lost jobs and such. So I mentioned this relationship with a woman who, a uh, great Catholic family, you know, someone that I really just enjoyed time with. And it wasn't her Catholicism per se that was attractive to me, but it was just her sense of, you know, family and other things. And, um, so we dated, we had some tr- troubles because when I drink and use drugs, I also lie and manipulate and deceive. And so there are troubles, you know, that that gets, you know, that it causes pain for not only me, but also other people. And so that was a, certainly an on and off again relationship. Um, we, she had moved out of state for about nine months and came back. And, you know, when things were, things got ugly, but then we decided as, you know, she was making the suggestion, maybe we'll be Catholic missionaries in Turkey or something like that. 
sure, I'll do that. She was, she had really become my idol. And, mm. um, and I was w- unwilling to do any of the practices or the routines or the, you know, the things that helped her have this sense of faith. But I thought that perhaps by osmosis, uh, she might even be able to, you know, kind of help me. Um, very uh, codependency too, which we can certainly get into that as a theme of, you know, people who not only struggle with addiction, but also family members and, and others that not only deal with addictions, but just have the sense of needing the approval of others in order to be well. Um, and so we decided to move to San Diego where she, her sister had previously lived. She had a friend living. I had, a, I had a friend living here and uh, you know, that was kind of like switching seats in the Titanic, uh, you know, inevitably going to go down with the ship. The problem was me and I was going along. So about a year into living here in San Diego, this was age 25, 26. Um, and in 2011, uh, the summer 2011, she had caught me in, in again, another lie and just had enough. She, you know, did for her what she had to do for herself, which was, you know, a really healthy thing for her to do challenging that, you know, when we find ourselves in situations of having to let go or set boundaries with someone. Um, But, you know, and so another month and a half went by of just really isolated drinking and drug use. And uh, I found that um, with one glimmer of hope, I was still, you know, telling her that I was getting sober. I was telling her that I was making some improvement. Of course, all just lip service. And uh, she again caught me in another lie. The day that um, this all kind of came to a head, she had made a, a kind of a stop in appearance in this little studio apartment that I had. And uh, I had lit up a joint and smoke, was smoking weed beforehand. And so she walked in kind of somewhat eager to see me, I think. But that turned, soon turned into disgust when she smelled the marijuana and looked at me and said, Scott, you're absolutely hopeless. You're never going to change. And, um, you know, so that was it. And that was, you know, the next day. I'm certain that I drank uh, my my problems away, the, the you know that shame away that night. Uh, but the next day, I took my little beach cruiser, one of the few things that I still had to my name, um, biked it down to Mission Bay, a little beach area in San Diego, and pushed it through the heavy sand. Called a few friends from back home, my mom and my dad, and told them that I needed help. I told them what they already knew that I had a problem that you know they they were aware of the consequences and such, and in fact you know had been hurt by it as well. Um, but they were helpful and they were willing to to walk with me, but also knew that they couldn't be the ones to help, you know, that that could be, I could be accountable to them in some ways. And I asked if I could, you know, make a call each day to just check in and say that I hadn't drank that day or no, the night before. And uh, the next day, then October 10th, 2011, I walked into an AA meet and uh, there I found men and women who knew exactly what I was going through. Although when I heard camaraderie, you know, kind of from above, uh, I, I was certain that I was in the wrong place. There was, you know, if they had any idea of what I was going through, they had mm-hmm. nothing to be laughing about. Um, but they were people who had found a solution to my problem and were willing to share experience, strength, and hope in a, in a very honest and humble way. And, uh, you know, after one of those first meetings, a man darted across the room. He looked me in the eye, said, I know exactly how you feel. You don't ever have to drink again. And he was right. And uh, he also said, you and I are going on a journey together, and neither one of us is coming back. And he was a little bit of a Yoda kind of, you know, I would say like, I would say John the Baptist mixed with Yoda kind of character. Let me, let me interrupt uh, you right here. A couple of things please. here. First and foremost, yeah. like the beautiful in terms of the, just even talking about like the need of mentorship, the need for like a, a Yoda or an Obi-Wan mm-hmm. Kenobi or a Gandalf or some type of figure in our life who's a few fewer steps down the road who can look back and say, hey, I know what you're going through and let's kind of, we're going to do this together and, and I'm going to walk mm-hmm. with you. 
I've been on this journey before, but I'm going to rewalk this with you for your own sake, but also for, for my sake. But I really would like to just ask you, and if you're open to sharing, what was it about that moment when you called your parents and your family back home? They said this was it. Like after, after nine years, basically from 17 to 26 of drinking, eight years, basically of, of, of struggling with something that we would classify as a full, full blown addiction at that point, that what, what was, and, and up to that point, you hadn't even acknowledged that you really did have a problem, that it was other people's problems, that wasn't your problem. What about that moment was the, was the catalyst or, or turned it around for you to accept that you didn't in fact have a problem that you needed to do something about? Yeah, I would say that it was it was more about getting honest with myself than it was about getting honest with anyone else. You know, because I mentioned, like I mentioned, they knew they were very well aware of my problem with alcohol sure. and drugs. Sure. And although you know, from a culture where it was somewhat more accepted, and you know, there's not a lot of recovery language nor uh, really value in recovery, uh, they were hoping that I would change. And they still, you know, but also all their well intentioned ideas or you know things that they had to share were you know, it didn't really land. They, I, I knew, I knew that I needed to change too, but in this moment where I actually, I spoke to someone, there was, then I was accountable to that. And so, you know, I would spin the idea around and was actually certain that I had a, a problem. And I, I kind of just assumed that I would be living at a 60% handicap my whole life and be having to, you know, pick up the pieces of, uh, you know, messes that I burnt, bridges that I burnt. And um, so I didn't even really think, part of it was not even thinking that there was a solution. But what was part of, you know, the solution was admitting that there was a problem. That was, you know, a big, big part of the solution. And not only just keeping that within my head, but also being accountable to someone. Because those windows of grace, and you probably see this a lot too, the the windows of grace for us to change, for us to step into something new, that kind of God-given courage, which is present within the fears that we have as well, um, it doesn't last forever. And so, you know, action needed to be taken almost immediately until, you know, I would rationalize the next drink or, you know, I, I say that in, I, we say in, in recovery that addiction is a disease that wants us to believe that we don't have a disease and, mm-hmm. um, right. and can be cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you for sharing all that. So, so back to the story then. So you meet this Obi-Wan Kenobi character. Yeah. Master Yoda presents himself in your life and he says, we're going to go on a journey that neither of us are going we're going to be different or however how do you say we're, mm-hmm. we're going to go yeah. on this journey together neither of us are going to be the same so that began the, the road for you for recovery and what was that process like then yeah so that was uh daily meeting attendance you know meeting with people who you know found shared Did experience you do the 90 90? i made 88 meetings in, nine, in my first 90 days yeah, there you i go. was Good too job. short of making 90 and 90 but <laughs> the intention you know helped me and that's that's exactly what it was i was drinking and using drugs every day for more than an hour a day and so I certainly could find and make the time. Uh, I found a group that was, you know, we call our home group and uh, meets at seven in the morning, the group that I still attend and continues to help save my life one day at a time. Uh, but that was instrumental having, you know, the same people around, people who were a couple of weeks, a couple months sober, but also many who were several years and even decades, 10, 20, 30, 40 years sober and still coming back to be part of a fellowship. And what unites us is our common weakness. And through that common weakness comes a sense of unity and victory. And, and so, you know, it's something that is, I, I couldn't have imagined, you know, that addiction recovery or the recovery fellowship that I found was going to be such life-giving. You know, I kind of just thought that a life of recovery or sobriety would just be about, you know, holding on, not, to, not taking that next drink or using that next drug or, you know, acting lustfully, you know, one day, you know, like, 
Like I'm just going to be, this is going to be no fun, no freedom. And instead the exact opposite was true. You know, God was opening new doors and, you know, the will of God being revealed. And I was learning about him, you know, having not really a, a solid Catholic upbringing. I should also note that around the same time, the man who helped save my life also encouraged me to get involved in the local Catholic young adult group, kind of playing with some of my intentions. He actually knew that I was really wanted to win my ex-girlfriend back, which spoiler alert didn't happen. Uh, but, um, but he also knew that I, you know, suggested finding people with a shared faith or he was kind of pressing into some other fellowship. There weren't a lot of, you know, most people, I got sober at age 26 and most of the people in my group were older than me. And so it was really important that I could find some friends, you know, common with my age. And the, most of the people that I had met and were hanging out with in San Diego were people that I was drinking or using drugs with. So I needed to find a new playground, a new playmate. And uh, so he encouraged me to do that in the local church. And uh, an active, a very active young adult group, which um, I got involved with, uh, started attending a weekly Wednesday night Bible study. One of the men who, were, who was leading that became a great friend of mine. I'm, I'm a godfather of one of his kids now, and he was, you know, bride groomsman in my wedding. But he spent time, invested time in me. I also had this great sense of shame of coming back to the church um, because, you know, I had this, I, I, you know, I had these demons or I was, you know, in recovery. It was, you know, I felt like everybody else was, you know, real good boys and girls and uh, had it all together. And so if they knew about my dark past, that they would uh, not accept me. And so that was a challenge, too, that I had to deal with. Balancing, you know, the, uh, my, my newfound faith in the church with the young adult community, which provided awesome friendship and, um, you know, getting to know the word of God, you know, on a weekly basis and making and really having that applied in my life. And then getting involved in addiction recovery, working, starting to work through the 12 steps, which saved my life and helped provide this freedom. You know, after a couple of months, the um, obsession to drink and use drugs was lifted. And that's an incredible miracle because, you know, addiction is uh, just experienced in a couple different ways. But uh, two of them, one, the, the mental obsession that comes when we are, haven't taken the drink yet, but then also the physical cravings that come when we, after we have taken the drink or used the drug, we, you know, can't just have one. And, uh, and so that was lifted. And, uh, you know, now making new friends, I also had to kind of learn a new way of life. Um, but people were patient with me, both in recovery and in the church. I found some people were going through RCIA and I was really jealous of them. They were making the adult decision to become Catholic. And, you know, we had just gone through the motions as a kid and into my, into high school. And it, it took me a little while to recognize that, you know, I was really initiating myself back into the faith by working through the 12 steps in a very similar and actually really practical way. In, in how the sacraments could overlap with that. And in time, 2015, about four years into my recovery, I then started a website called CatholicInRecovery.com. And so that kind of launched into this, this mission and apostolate. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things personally happened, though, which we can dive into. Too. Well, we'll get into all of it. I, I really yeah. appreciate your honesty, Scott, and the way you kind of detailing this whole story. And I think it's beautiful, as you said that, again, at, at the lowest moment, um, God found you. And so in terms of accepting that and acknowledging that there was a problem, like you had to acknowledge that. And you said it was a small window of grace where I agree. There's like these moments of, of, of like, now's the time to act like, you know, and I think we can all kind of resonate with that, whether we struggle with addiction or not, there's sometimes it's kind of a clear window. It's like, okay, here's, here's the answer. Here's the moment that I've been praying for. And like, okay, I can't, I'm not going to ask why or what's what, like, now's the time. Let's just kind of, let's engage. And so you engaged in that moment not really going to your faith. It was more just, I need to, I need to get healthy. And then through this, this mentor figure in your life, 
am telling you to start getting involved in, in a young adult group for many reasons. One, to get the girl back, you know, so if, you, if that was one reason. But then also, as you said, just, just to be able to um, get healthy community. And I think that's a key point also that like, you know, my, my parents taught us and we tell our kids, you are who you hang out with. And so, you know, if you're going to be hanging out with certain crowds of individuals, like it's no knock on them, it's not any judgment or anything, but, but you're going to, you're going to adapt the behaviors of the, of the, of the, the waters that you're swimming in. And so as you're trying to develop something different and become a better person, you, you need to just to have d different people, you know, in your life, uh, who are going to support this. And so, so you talked about that beautifully in terms of recognizing the now mm -hmm. out of this growth, out of this recovery. Now it's like this faith journey starts kicking in. It's like, okay, so now both are happening at the same time, your recovery and your Catholicism. So here's Catholic and recovery, <laughs> you know, here, mm -hmm. here's the, here, here, here comes this ministry that, that you start this website in 2015. And, and when you started it, what, what was your intention? I mean, what was your, what was your idea? What were you hoping to, to, to do with it? Yeah, there was, you know, so much, these two life-giving entities in my life, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step groups, and the Catholic Church, you know, doing, like I said, very similar things, and in many ways could learn from one another. You know, there was the sense in recovery groups that um, uh, discussions of, of faith, or, you know, a lot of, I would say, anti-Catholic sentiments somewhat being shared in recovery meetings, whereas if we get descriptive or uh, give a name to our higher power, that that in some groups can be deemed out of bounds. Yet, you know, and that can be troublesome for some people who come in with a really great devotion, a Catholic devotion, and might feel somewhat alienated. It wasn't a challenge for me as I didn't come in with a great deal of faith and also just desperate for my life to be saved and not necessarily, you know, judging on, on moral theology, on theology and such. But, and also then the, the church could learn from the, the fellowship nature of 12-step recovery groups and just the way that, that people are evangelized and, and know and experience the, truly the love of God in those groups. Um, in a variety of ways, but you see miracles happen. And, you know, there's, there's, I think, a really great opportunity for the church to be leaning into um, meeting people in these places where, where people are just clinging for God or desperate for God, rather than tailoring to, you know, the, the few who, who are have it all together and, um, you know, and trying to improve in holiness. I heard recently, and I think this is true, that a lot of what we do in church is uh, teaching drowning people how to we'll give swimming lessons to people who are drowning. And so, you know, Pope Francis would echo this as well in, in describing the church needing to be a field hospital, tending to the wounds of individuals. And so I meet with a lot of people, you know, people who have shame and, you know, yeah, myself and previously included, you know, where, you know, there's this shame of, I don't even know if I belong here in the church. If they find out who I really am, would they accept me? And so that cultural shift needed to take place and could learn somewhat from 12-step uh, groups where, in, in many cases, when people were coming to the church uh, for addiction recovery help, we were, you know, people are just being delegated in many ways to secular 12-step groups, which, again, helped save my life. But isn't this an opportunity to be accompanying, evangelizing, and walking with people and integrating the sacramental life? So there were very few resources which really overlapped the 12-step addiction recovery that I was you know, saving my life in um, really the traditions of the Catholic Church. So I just started a website where I was writing about my experience, strength, and hope on a number of topics related to family and forgiveness and how to deal with the holidays and different, you know, things, topics that would have a unique Catholic perspective on some recovery-related themes. And so the, when did you actually start Catholic and recovery groups? When did the first group actually begin? Yeah, the first group started in January 2017. 
Okay, so two so, years after the launch of the website that, that you yeah. finally had your first group. How did you feel the yeah. need to, to, to move into that? Where it's like, okay, here I'm just offering resources um, online to say now it's time to actually create like a formal, a formal meeting uh, where we're actually going to be, be doing this uh, at a church. Yeah, the Holy Spirit really just led the whole thing in, in many ways. I didn't, first of all, I would have never you know, expected to be uh, this to be my role or, or to be the one kind of um, you know, ushering this. But, you know, God, you know, had some plans. And so I just began, again, writing websites. I thought maybe I would do some speaking and, you know, kind of be like a, a Catholic speaker or something like that, or someone who, you know, maybe writes some blogs and such. And I did some of that and, you know, still do some of that, of course, but um, would find that as I was, well, a couple of things were happening. First, I got an opportunity. I got a uh, Facebook message one day from a woman named Lisa Hendy who the editor at larger acquisitions editor, Ave Maria Press, asking me if I was interested in writing a book or writing, writing some more. She had read some of my stuff, I think had seen a, a, a podcast or an article that was done on, that I had participated in and saw the opportunity to write a book. So that was <laughs> knocked my socks off. Awesome. And so put a proposal together for a book. This was introduced in 2016. And then it was ultimately published in November of 2017. But while I was writing the manuscript in 2016, kind of due at the end of the year, I was doing some talking and, and that was really nice because I could kind of work some of the content, some of what I was going to be putting in the book, I could be just you know, speaking about and getting feedback from. The best part of those speaking engagements was when I was done talking and other people had the chance to share about their experience, strength and hope, either with their own addiction, active addiction or their addiction recovery or that of a family member. And people being able to share openly about their, you know, how they lean on the sacraments or lean on the devotion to the rosary or how the saints can make a big influence in their recovery. And so it's clear, like we need to bring these people together on a regular basis. There's, you know, this kind of honest and really, you know, first of all, very rare that you would hear this kind of honest sharing in the Catholic church. Um, but you know, like th this is healing there. And, and so it was it's a sad statement that, we, that you just made, but it's a true one. So, so you keep going though. Right. <laughs> and yeah, but so it was clear that we need to bring that all together. So, at January 2017, we started our first Catholic and Recovery meeting here in San Diego, which uh, a general recovery meeting, as most of them are, and uh, providing support not only for those with alcoholism or drug addiction, but also compulsive overeating, restricted eating, anorexia and bulimia, uh, compulsive spending, betting, pornography and lust addiction, gambling addiction, codependency, and the family side of addiction. From there, we, we started to... Uh, you know, play with some formats and provide specific addiction recovery meetings for one for family and friends impacted by addiction recovery using many principles that you would find in an Al-Anon meeting. And then also a specific meeting for men finding recovery from pornography and lust addiction where, you know, some of those intimate discussions best to be had in a very intimate setting amongst men. The, you know, we, we've had started a few more groups in San Diego then started uh, providing resources for others who are reaching out to us looking to start a, a similar type of group. And so we began supporting parishes first in Oregon and then in Albuquerque, New Mexico and then Columbus, Ohio and popping up throughout the country. Now we have about 40 Catholic and recovery groups in 13 different states. We're adding several over the next month. Awesome, been, awesome man. That's incredible. awesome. Praise God. Praise God. All right, well, let's take a quick break from this conversation with Scott Weeman just to kind of promote again here this little project that I've been working on called Dating Well, Almost Everything You Need to Know About Dating as a Catholic. 
It is 19 video lessons that will be packaged together and sold as kind of a master class on dating. We're hoping to launch this thing in 2022. It's in the post-production editing stage right now. So I ask you please to continue to pray for it and pray for it, pray for this project just that it goes well. Um, it is something that has been on my heart for the last couple of years. I've been wanting to write and, and have a platform to be able to speak specifically about dating, the ins and outs, all the things that I've learned over my 15 years as a marriage therapist, walking with young couples, walking them into marriage, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, knowing how to evaluate the process. When is it going too far? When are arguments too heavy? What should you be doing via texting? What should you be saying via the phone? All this different stuff, all the nitty gritty, that's what we're going to get into, into dating well. So please continue to pray for this project, and I look forward to having it ready for you sometime in early 2022. So, so back to the model here for a second. I mean, I'm familiar with uh, the AA model, of course, in the 12 steps, and we'll talk about this. But also in the in the Protestant churches, at a Saddleback church, not far from where you are, um, uh, Rick Warren, you know, he started uh, Celebrate Recovery. And so I know mm -hmm. CR groups have taken off and are all over. And their model is that, and I'm sure you're familiar, but for the listeners who may not be, my understanding is, you know, everybody gets together, they do some praise and worship or some 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 devotion, something in a, in a large group. Sometimes they may have a meal, but then when they actually get into their recovery aspects, they break off into specific rooms. And so the church has to be big enough to have different rooms for, and, and this may not be the model for all of CR, so I apologize if you know if, if I'm if I'm butchering this. But at least in Tallahassee, uh, the the group that I was familiar with, this is the way that they ran, you know, their their meetings. And so then it was great that you had everybody together, but then you did have those particular conversations, you know, for the alcoholics, for um, um, you know, kind of NA meetings, um, then the you know, sex and lust addiction, like you said, codependency, um, and then uh, and eating disorders. Also, they had the specific groups for for those. Um, it seems like with what you guys are doing with, so we can't say CR, Catholic Recovery, CIR, can we say CIR? What, 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 CR's yeah, already taken. CIR. So, so what are we saying? CIR, yeah. CIR. Um, that, that, uh, is, it, is it that it has that same model or is it that it's one general group where regardless of kind of what you're struggling with, um, the process of healing is going to be the same. So there's a commonality that, that's present there. Yeah, so the general, more the latter. So one general group. And, and there are opportunities, you know, we do have now virtual meetings, so virtual Catholic and recovery meetings where there are some more specific addiction types. So we have meetings specifically for lust addiction, you know, um, compulsive eating and other, you know, behavioral and process addictions and such. And also a meeting for family members impacted by a loved one's lust addiction, uh, those who might know the, the trauma of, of betrayal that, that's involved with that. And so we certainly would also suggest listeners check that out too, if you're interested or looking to find some support yourself for your own addiction or compulsion or that of a family member or loved one. Um, but yeah, the general recovery meetings provide a really nice place. And, you know, whereas some specifics are very nice, they're very holistic, I would say a holistic approach to recovery. So someone like myself who might be an all of the above kind of an addict where, you know, struggles in variety of different places, there can be a tendency to kind of switch addictions, if you will. And so, you know, kind of leaving, you know, not no longer drinking or using drugs, but not finding yourself, you know, addicted to pornography use or compulsive eating. And that happens, you know, you, we hear that. And so many people Smoking who have, you know, or something or marijuana or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. And so a holistic approach to really, you know, surrendering all to God and, you know, being reasonable too. We still, it's the same uh, kind of spiritual principles that you'll find in 12-step um, recovery 
such as we, we strive to make spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. You know, those are so, still ring true. Um, but yeah, general recovery groups provide a really a place where people can be intimate and share and find common, you know, common solutions. The different addiction types or manifestations, what I would say, of the same kind of spiritual malady are oftentimes, you know, we see, we see isolation, fear, resentment, uh, and the same kind of behaviors in active addiction and still the same 12 steps for recovery um, being part of the solution. Okay. So let's talk about the 12 steps then. Yeah. Walk me through them. Um, I, I love when I work with, with, with addicts. I mean, they're very quick. They can, you know, I'm on step this, I'm on step this. And, you know, they just, they just throw it out. So, so if we can just take a little bit, maybe we could talk about the 12 steps. Um, what are they? Why are they important? And uh, why are they just kind of tried and true? I mean, why, why are they still effective even today? Yeah. So the 12 steps um, were founded in the 1930s, AA, and as mentioned too, great Catholic influence within uh, the start of, of 12 step meetings. The first step, and, and really leads someone in a very practical way to, to surrender, surrendering our will and our lives over the care of God, which is a step. Um, and, and provides a means for honesty, honesty, openness, and willingness. We say how it's done, honesty, openness, and willingness. Who, you know, are the willing, the humble, and the open-minded? Um, I, I just love, I love, I love that there's like such a, there's like such a clear culture uh, in, in, in the addiction circles. I mean, like in terms of like little, little pithy sayings that, that always get thrown out. Um, you know, you said earlier, like, like for it also, in anyways, there's so many, I just, I, I just, I, I love that there's such a, such a strength of a culture uh, that's present there. So, so, so keep going. Yeah. All right. Well, I know I'll say too the slogans that we hear, which I can rattle off. Yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of spiritual wisdom in them. They used to drive me nuts. You know, they would have a, go into the a meeting room and you'd see like little crocheted, you know, messages on a on a plaque that say like, "Let go and let God," or "Live and let live." You know, it was like probably put up there in 1958, and you know, I'm thinking like, man, these things are just so trite, but. I've come to recognize how true and, you know, important they are and, you know, leaning on the value of those, of those slogans. Um, so, uh, so we begin with the first step and it really just an admission of, you know, we admitted we are powerless over alcohol or you fill in the blank there. It doesn't have to be alcohol. And that's really the only step that includes the word alcohol. So we admitted that we are powerless over addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And we look at the first three steps uh, through the lens, really, if we're looking at it through the, sac- the lens of the sacraments as kind of our, our baptism, that, that, um, that need for a savior. And so the admission of powerlessness is crucial, truly, as Catholics. We do this, you know, when we're in Mass. Um, every, you know, when we're in Mass, we admit, you know, that we are sinners and then need of a savior. And so... Even when we dip our, our fingers into the baptismal font, we're plunging ourselves into the same baptismal waters that Jesus did. And, um, you know, and coming to that sense of hopefully finding identity as beloved sons of God or daughters of God, rather than um, being identified by the shame of our addiction. And so that first step, a lot of honesty. And we write down that really the consequences of our behaviors, even perhaps the consequences that we have yet to experience that. But in due time will if the pattern continues and this provides a really good outlet to put on paper you know the truth of the matter and and see things objectively i heard a man once say in a meeting that he said um you know i might not be an alcoholic but whoever wrote this first step definitely is referring to his own 
And, uh, you know, so we have, in, you know, another kind of thing, but the man who saved my life, Michael, would always remind me, we've got this built-in forgetter. And this is absolutely true. It's why people keep coming back to meetings even after 20, 30, 40 years of sobriety, in addition to the fulfillment that comes with being able to live a life of service and, you know, supporting those who are seeking the same solution. Um, but yeah, getting honest with ourselves, a crucial part of the first step. And then step two is coming to believe that a power can, greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity, which really makes us question who, you know, what is, who is God in our understanding? And um, can he restore us to sanity? And if we're, you know, making a decision or coming, you know, coming to believe that God can, there's some progress that needs to take place there. And oftentimes too, much like myself, people that find recovery are not always in a great relationship with God. And so being able to have, you know, understanding God, who is someone that can be active in our lives, that can help save us one day at a time, uh, oftentimes that requires a great shift in our understanding of who God is. Yeah. And let, let me usually, say this real quick, because what, what I hear so often with that specifically is that the shame that is such a barrier for people to get help. And you spoke about this a little bit, even in your own experience, that if, if so-and-so knew what I did. I can't even forgive myself for what I've done. How could God love me? How could God accept me? How could, how could the church or anybody member in the church, if they really saw me for who I was, I mean, and it's, and I know that we all deal with shame. I get it, but I recognize in a particular way for the addict, it's because self forgiveness is so difficult and being able to then look at yourself as something other than just, you know, these bad behaviors. Um, and so there, there's something beautiful and in, in allowing yourself to 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 accept it, you know, in the language of it's an addiction, um, it is a disease, it is something that that is that is working in me. Um, certainly, I'm responsible, and I know we'll get into the, the the rest of the steps in terms of where you take responsibility for 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 the defects, the character defects, and, and the actions that have fallen there. But but at least beginning from a place of recognizing that that this thing is unmanageable, this thing has a power over you. Um, that there needs to be some acceptance of humility and love that goes deeper than the shame uh, to be able to to motivate any sense of growth. Um, thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the exact reason why we can't do this on our, our on our own. You know, and that's often our first inclination of you know I don't want anyone to know about this, but I got to do something about it. So I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to go in a foxhole and fix myself, which. You know, we can't, we, we need others to show us the love of God, to be the eyes and the hands of God in order for us to first, you know, to, to see that, you know, to, we need to see that practically in a human being. Oftentimes, at least for me, that was the case. And we say, oh, you know, we'll say, we'll say too in recovery that, you know, we will tell people, the newcomer, you know, let us love you until you can love yourself. And so, you know, it's that you can't really give what you, you know, what you receive until you've received it. And so, for me, self-forgiveness came a little bit after I was willing to forgive others and, you know, assume some personal responsibility. But there was still this sense of, you know, and lingering effects of it, too. You know, I was 26 years old. I hadn't finished my bachelor's degree. My, you know, I was I was working a job, which I liked. I loved the job, but I hated my job title. And, um, <clears throat> there, you know, like I just lived with this sense of insecurity. So even after getting sober, finding a relationship with God, there were a lot of other things in life that needed to be. Um, I needed to come to be okay with, you know, just being okay, not being okay in some respects and, you know, still being a work in progress and defining myself by um, my relationship as a beloved son of God, rather than what I do as a, for work or other things like that. So let's so, go back to the 12 yeah. steps then. So step, um, step four then is, is, is what? 
Yeah, so as we, in step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God and surrender. The best way that you know that, you're, that you've done in step three is that you're working step four, which is a thorough moral inventory of ourselves. And steps four through nine really overlap well and probably the most blatantly with the sacrament of reconciliation. So step four, you might think of as a, a very thorough examination of conscience that, uh, or a thorough examine that, you know, is, is in detail, but there's also structure to it too. We, we list our resentments, we list our fears, and we list some sexual conduct. And, and from there, we also then get, get into taking responsibility though. It's not just you know, easy for, it's easy for me to list my resentment, meant resentment. I was full of resentment at the time and my fears as well, although I needed a little bit of help around that to provide some language and vocabulary for describing my fears um, and, and to see kind of beyond the you know, surface level of things like anger. But, um, move, you know, what's my resentment? Who is the offender? Who's the offender? What's the resentment? How was my, you know, how am I affected? But then step that fourth column in the fourth step inventory is, what is my part in the resentment? And that is where we um, get honest with ourselves. And so we you know, need to get honest with the first three, but also really taking responsibility in step four. In step five, we um, share with God, ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrong. So much like getting in the confession and being honest with God, this is something that we can do both in the confessional and in original recovery literature suggests doing so, but also something that we would do with a sponsor who might share a little bit about himself or herself as well. And, and really guide us and help us to, uh, you know, kind of share those things, the, take responsibility, but also just you know, let it go and put it behind us. You know, step six and seven, we ask God to remove whatever defects of character stand in the way of serving him and others. And then step eight, we make a list of all persons we had harmed, became willing to become willing to make amends to them all. And that's kind of two, a two-part process. We make the list, but then the becoming willing to make amends to them all requires that this is where for me, a lot of self-forgiveness took place and even forgiveness for others. And so I knew that I was going to have to get in front of people and take responsibility and share with them, you know, and, and, and it had to be a one, you know, I had to take, it had to be all on me. I couldn't be pointing blame during that process. And so in order to do that, I needed to be, I need to let go of some things. And so, you know, and oftentimes it was suggested to pray for the person that I was resentful at for you know three weeks, praying for their, well-being, everything that I would pray for myself, pray for that they might receive, even, you know, with that, if at first I don't feel it, do it. And that helped soften my heart so that when it became time to do step nine, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except what did injure, except when to do so would injure them or others. You know, I was able to, um, I found forgiveness for them in many ways and could just take ownership in a way that was, you know, also letting know what I'm, what I'm doing to, to help overcome it. And, um, you know, how can I make this right? How difficult was step nine? Um, it was, boy, it was really challenging, but, uh, but also really rewarding. There were some that went better than others. Most went quite well, you know, and most people were very willing to, um, to have that conversation to, to, and it's not a means for forgiveness. It's not a means so that I can, you know, we don't do, we don't make amends so that I can let the weight off my back. That's, that's far from the intention. The, the intention is so that I can get clean with other people in my life, so that I can, I can look people in the eye and, and be good and have, you know, taken ownership and, and looking forward to moving forward and, and um, healing. And then step 10, we continue to take personal inventory and when, and when wrong, promptly admit it. But in step nine, you know, you don't want to make those amends again. And so there's ample, that, that provides ample motivation to keep, you know, keep my plate clean in many ways. And of course, you know, I'm going to fall, I'm going to make mistakes, but, you know, in most of my 
challenges came from, it's not the making of the mistake, but in the covering up of the mistake or in the manipulation, the dishonesty. And, um, and so step nine helped me get honest. And even, you know, progress seemed to be made though, too. I wasn't, you know, there was even an amends that I made with the with that ex-girlfriend before that, um, that didn't, that went really poorly. I was still trying to kind of wiggle out of, uh, of the truth. And even after my sponsor and I spent plenty of time, and by the way, this, I did my ninth step and I've done a few, but, um, you know, beginning at about a year since a year sober or so. So and, that's good. That's good um, to state that because I think maybe that helps can give again a framework because I don't want people thinking that, you know, you're going to go to AA and you do your 88 and 90 or 90 and 90 and, and all of a sudden everything's just kind of great. That this process, even long after, as you said, the the um, obsessive thoughts and the physical cravings went away, still working the steps uh, to get you to just a, a place of health. It, it took, like you said, o- o- over a year here um, as you're kind of walking through all of them. Yeah. And, you know, working through the steps the whole time, not dragging my feet and wanting to drag my feet and having a sponsor that would encourage and, right. and, and you know, support. Um, yeah. And so getting honest in the ninth step, really, you know, important and valuable. Um, man, there was something I was going to share that I just on the tip of my tongue too. I'm sure That's it'll okay. come back to you. I'm sure it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so step 10. And so, so really, and I would also, yeah, I would add that in, in preparation for that ninth step, though, even, even writing letters, you know, writing a letter, an immense letter, I do not send a letter. This is a tool that I've, that I continue to use. That's really, really helpful. And just write, you know, in writing out uh, a letter to someone that, of course, I'm not going to send, I would, I'll share it with my sponsor and he'll read it and give feedback. And, you know, and, and that might take some different forms. This do not send a men's letter was one where I was just, you know, taking responsibility and, and putting it out there and, and not, not shifting blame uh, and you know, not rationalizing my bad behavior. And so then, you know, I present that to my sponsor. He would look it over, take this you know, disgusting red pen out and, you know, make some marks on it and stuff like that. And then we would, we would, mo- you know, we would modify it until it got to a place where this is good. This is right. Really preparing for those amends. So there was a lot of thorough work. And even in some instances getting, you know, face to face with my sponsor kind of role-playing how the amends might go. Well, I tell you what, it was somewhat awkward to do that, you know, man to man was a man that I really respected and loved and still do. But, um, but it provided a lot of fruit, you know, it just, it was incredible, raw God's mercy is just, you know, someone willing to take that kind of time out, um, to support me and walk along the way. Um, and, and it helps keep him sober as well. That's how recovery really works. So step 10, we continue to, to, um, continue to take personal inventory when wrong, promptly admit it, much like a daily inventory, a daily, um, you know, exam that we might do. And there's some different ways to do that. I would say also much like our daily bread, you know, and so also that moves into step 11, uh, which continues to seek, uh, continue to improve our conscious contact with God through prayer and meditation, seeking only knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, that second part being very important as well. Whereas, you know, prayer coming to understand prayer and meditation is not bending God's will towards ours and, you know, pleading with God. So God, can we make this happen? But rather, putting myself in an open and willing place to make, to bend my will towards his. And, um, you know, we can, you know, a lot of similarities again with the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius and we're getting into step 11. Um, you know, even recovery literature points to the St. Francis prayer as a great prayer to use in, in recovery. We refer to the St. Francis prayer as the 11th step prayer. And, uh, and one that really provides, I think, an outline to live that's, that's healthy and provides purpose and meaning. And then in step 12, we give back what we've received. And so having had a spiritual awakening, 
Um, we then share the message with others and continue to practice these principles in all of our affairs. And that gives us the letter, you know, really we become disciples in church language and we share the good news with others, you know, giving back what we can and, you know, working with those who are willing. And um, yeah. And when the hand of AA, yeah. Which is beautiful. So which sacrament then are you saying, you said uh, the first three is really baptism. uh, Four through nine is uh, reconciliation. How did you map out uh, 10, 11, 12? Yeah. 10 and 11, the, the Eucharist, like I said, our daily bread. There's no really greater way that we can maintain conscious contact with God than through his flesh and, and coming to be really Eucharistic people. Um, Father Ron Rollheiser in his, in his book, Our One Great Act of Fidelity, describes the Eucharist as we are broken, much like the grapes that are stomped and the, the grain of wheat that is crushed. You know, we too should be are broken down, but then formed into a communal loaf. And I love that description of, of really how the body of Christ come together, even even despite, you know, our challenges, our differences, our, our dark past. You know, in many ways, then we look to step 12 as, confirm, as, you know, through kind of the sacrament of confirmation where Jesus goes and says, you know, make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, all power on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you, you go make disciples of all nations, which means that we need to be plugged into that power. But at the same time, you know, we can find a life of purpose and meaning by uh, by sharing with others what we what we found, and um, yeah. So just like the early church was started, you know, that's how twelve step recovery was started, which is one man or woman sharing experience, strength, and hope with another, and that cycle continuing to happen. And I think it's a beautiful recipe for for discipleship and evangelization, and just providing an outlet for people to know the the, the love of God and the mercy of God that exists despite however dark our past might be. Yeah. So like you said earlier that the church is kind of like teaching people who are drowning how to swim, um, which is beautiful. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel though it, it, it's become uh, teaching people, uh, you know, who already know how to swim. I mean, this is bad of analogy, you know, how to, how to become Olympic swimmers, you know, or how to, how mm-hmm. to become, um, you know, more proficient, more efficient swimmers kind of in the pool or whatever. And, and again, I, I'm not obviously discrediting obviously ongoing formation and the need for education and for the need in personal growth for sure. But sometimes we forget that that there's a whole segment of the population that's just drowning, and uh, praise God, you know, I happen to be one of the ones who knows how to swim, and, and but that I was drowning at one point too, and so always having to, I, I think the church, I've said this before, the church operates best when 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 it's outward, you know, that's when its wind is at its sails, when it is that field hospital, when it is that that missionary endeavor that's trying to reach people, to bring people into her fold, not for the sake of padding numbers. Uh, or, or being able to say that we have the biggest church or the biggest ministry or whatever, but rather just to be able to meet people in their needs, to bring them, to offer them what the answer is uh, to their particular struggles, and to, to tell them that the church, when it's in its best, um, does in fact have the answers. Um, and so helping people, and, and I think this is what's beautiful about these type of recovery groups, because because I think what I appreciate about working with, with, with addicts is that the when they come to that realization of how helpless they are, uh, it, it's it's a profound revelation. Um, and I've, in, in the work that they have to do to overcome the challenges that they've experienced is really just the journey of faith um, and being able to help them. If this is the path that God has for you, that it, it that needed to happen for you to become the saint that God wants you to be, then you praise him. That's all you can say. That's it. You know, if, if it took this for you to realize how much you needed God, then that's it. You know, you praise him and, 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 and you keep moving forward with it. 
Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Today's a new day. And that's exactly, you know, we fall into these patterns of we can either live in the shame of the past or fear of what, to, of what tomorrow might bring. Um, but when we can just be, you know, acceptance is a really big part of that. And, yeah, I mentioned, I think a big, a big part of maintaining that too, because, you know, you can, there can be this kind of this excitement about sobriety and recovery within the first days, weeks, months, right. you know, also coupled with some shame, but there can, you know, we feel better. We're not t- putting toxins into our bodies in a lot of ways. So like we, we begin to feel better. We, uh, some people will even describe it as a pink cloud that we're on, you know, we're just humming along, but that doesn't always last. And, uh, and so in order to maintain that spirit, it's important that we shift from what I described as addiction, addiction being very self-centered to very outward focused. And this as a church is also when, you know, like you said, when we're at, when we're at our best, when our families at our, at our, their, are at our best, we're outward focused. When, when we are at our best, we're outward focused and sharing, being willing to, um, you know, be self-sacrificing and self-sacrificial, being of service. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there are things in this world that can prevent that, that can uh, make us believe that comfort might even be, might be the more, uh, the better path or the better route. So if somebody's listening to this who is struggling with an addiction or some type of compulsive behavior that they're not able or haven't, haven't yet taken the step here, what would you tell them? I begin by saying that, <clears throat> me too, that um, it, addiction is not a moral referendum on one's life. That's really important to, to note. And so I can understand, you know, why the, sh- the shame that you might feel. But um, me too. Addiction is not a moral referendum on one's life. It also doesn't discriminate. And so it doesn't have to, it's not descriptive of who you are. Um, you are a beloved child of God with whom he's well pleased. And simply wants you to return to him one day at a time. You know, there are many people like myself who uh, have found a solution and who who know both the pain of addiction, the darkness, the hopelessness, and also from the miraculous comeback. And whereas it might feel like the substance or the behavior is your only way out on a daily basis, you might long for the moment when you can get it and feel free, yet still uh, remain, you know, bonded to that. And so freedom is offered by Jesus Christ. Come find others who have found the solution and, uh, and let go. There's, uh, there's, there's a, a, a variety of life is awaiting you and, uh, it's not too late. I assure you. Amen. Amen. Well, what about family members who, who may have somebody who's struggling that, um, has not come to accept their, 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 their weakness. How would, what would you say to them? Well, important for family members who might similarly feel some similar shame or, or just resolve lessened pride from the family um you didn't cause it I, I can assure you that you did not cause this addiction despite what some other people might tell you what you might be telling yourself you also can't control it nor can you cure it and this uh can be a really challenging thing to accept as well some family members will go a lifetime wanting feeling like they are, are responsible for controlling and curing the addiction whereas just like in my case you know very concerned family members and friends who, you know, would describe and share with me all the reasons why I had to quit. Um, it wasn't until someone could look me in the eye and say, I know exactly how you feel, which cut through all layers of denial in my life. And so you are not responsible for getting your loved ones sober or clean. You can certainly provide um, help when, it's, when there is some willingness expressed. But what I would suggest doing is to find a, a group of individuals who have been in your shoes and who are in your shoes and have found behaviors and boundaries in life that have provided an outlet to live a joyful life, despite whether your loved one gets sober or not. And happiness can be available. You can still also have a very loving relationship with your loved one, 
despite whether they drink or use drugs or result to unhealthy behaviors. And so, but, but you can't, that in itself is also hard to come to alone. And so finding a fellowship of others who are in, who are in and have been in a similar situation is vital. Yeah. Amen. That's great advice on, on both fronts in terms of just beautiful invitation for people to be able to get help and to avail themselves of the help that's available there. Um, and particularly then, you know, the second piece about family members, wonderful encouragement. It's not your fault. It's not, um, it's not your responsibility either. Um, they have to certainly get the help that they need. You can help them to some degree, but surrounding yourself with people to, that you can have healthy boundaries so you can still find happiness and meaning in your life. Um, even with something like this, like with a family member who's struggling with an addiction, um, is, mm-hmm. is very, very, very difficult. The line to navigate, yet at the same time, that's what Al-Anon groups are helpful for, uh, mm-hmm. codependency anonymous groups, things of that nature that are that are there to help provide some some encouragement um, in, in, com- in camaraderie, like you said earlier, to be able to kind of navigate and help and walk with these things. So, yeah. Scott, the whole, go ahead. The whole family is impacted by addiction, whether yes. we want to accept it or not. And so the the family then should be responsible for their own recovery. And right. um, whether we like it or not, you know, there's there's freedom that awaits the family member impacted by addiction, just like freedom awaits uh, the individual impacted by addiction. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. So it's got to appreciate the time and uh, you got a few more minutes or you just a couple more minutes here. We got one more, th- yeah. more questions, things I want to, want to talk about here before we wrap up. Bye. Um, the serenity prayer, man, I, 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 I pray it. I love it. Um, I think, uh, it's, I, I mean, it's up there, right? Like it, obviously it's not the mass, so it's not the liturgy. It's, it's not the, our father. I get that. It's not the hail Mary. It's not the glory be, but, uh, maybe right underneath that. That's if that's the hall of fame of prayers, you know, is, is that top tier? Maybe the serenity prayer is kind of like right on the cusp. It's, it's right underneath that. I would say, um, I, I, I think it's a great prayer for, for all of us to, 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 to pray. So I'm going to, I'm going to say it now, uh, because I really believe that it is, um, it just speaks beautifully, um, to, I think we're, we're, we're a, a certain mindset that we all need to have, which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference, which is just. I mean, beautiful in terms of being able to say, give me peace, Lord, to be accepting and understanding of the things that I have no control over because there are absolutely things in my life that I have no control over. Um, I may not have control of specific when it comes to addiction. I may not have control that today is the day that that physical craving kind of emerges. Um, I may not be able to control my kids yelling or my boss yelling or the stress that happens uh, because of COVID or the economy or any of those things. So God, give me serenity, give me peace to be able to to accept those things. But then at the same time, to know that not everything in life is is helpless. I'm not helpless against everything in life. And so to know that there are things that I can change, and if I know what those things are, to be able to have the courage and the focus to to set my my uh, my hands on the plow and to 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 go and to do um, and to make changes on the things that I can in fact change and to be able to know the difference between the two, which is just a- absolutely a beautiful prayer. And so that's the first half of the prayer that most people know. But the second half of the prayer, I think, is is just as profound. And so it goes: living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting the hardship as the pathway to peace, which is beautiful in terms of just accepting and acknowledging that even in the suffering of my life, that God has a plan and a purpose in it. And so being able to, to, to still try to find some meaning in it. And he said, and it says, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, 
not as I would have it. So you got to deal with reality. You know, you can't, you can't discern the first piece about courage, about being able to know what I should and what I shouldn't do. You can't make that decision in abject cynicism and you can't make that decision in, in abject naivete. You have to be able to take the world as it is. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life. And here we go, my page cut off, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. That, that concept of being reasonably happy, I think, is, is, is a healthy kind of marker. It's like, man, we're, we're, we're not going to get to heaven. We're not going to get to the, 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 the highs of heaven on this side of earth. And so there is a certain recognition that, like, we just need to be a certain accepting of. And again, it's not to be depressed or despondent. It's just recognizing that there's always going to be factors and forces that are going to be playing against us. And so if I'm making movement to at least be reasonably happy, I mean, like, that's a that's, I'll take reasonably happy. You know, most days out of, out of nine days out of 10, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly be satisfied with that, with the hope and the intention that man, like whatever comes after this life will, will be the supreme happiness that God has given to me. Um, so I, I, I love this prayer. I think it's wonderful. I think it gives a, a, a just a wonderful, healthy frame of reference, uh, to be able to help people to, 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 to ask for the right things. Um, thoughts. I'm beautiful summary. You're right. I'm here fist pumping all along. I mean, you're right. It's an, it's an awesome prayer, both parts of it. And most only know the first part of it, which in itself is incredible. A prayer that I prayed hundreds of times a day, my first couple of days and weeks of sobriety. God grant, you know, this ringing, running through my head on a regular basis. And it's a prayer of process, not a prayer of results. You know, you notice that the things that we request are not the fruits, but rather the, the, the how, you know, God grant me the serenity. I'll give me the serenity to accept the things. Don't give me acceptance. Allow me serenity so that I might accept it. The courage, don't, don't change things for me. Lord, give me the courage to change the things I can. And then the wisdom to know the difference. There's, um, yeah, it, it can, you know, make things pretty clear. Uh, it, I think just, you know, reciting that prayer can make it pretty clear. What, what are the things that I cannot change? What are the things that I can change? And Lord, help me discern what those things might be. But Which is really hard. I just want to say this r- r- before you jump into the second part there. But like, that's really hard at times. I mean, like, because we really otherwise can fall into a, um, a victim mentality or helplessness about everything in life. Or sometimes we fall into a, a headstrong, I'm going to freaking take life by do it. And I'm just going to keep beating my head and make sure that I'm going to change every little thing uh, that is wrong. Equal, both are Both are extremes, certainly. Um, but I think sometimes we, we, we tend to gravitate towards one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. And so being able to know that sometimes if, if we're the headstrong types that we're going to be the active changers, that sometimes we need to back off a little bit and, and, and be able to say, you know, some things I don't have to change right now and, and that's okay. But if we're maybe more on the, on the passive side and, and, and we lack some assertiveness, sometimes we need that encouragement to be able to say, you know what, actually there are things that you can do to make your situation better. And being able to know the difference between the two um, is at times difficult to discern, but this is why it's beautiful in talk about a prayer that we keep praying it. God, give me, give me, give me, give me this. This is what I need. Don't give me, don't give me the money. Don't give me, don't give me the, the bends, you know, give me, give me understanding, give me virtue so I can be able to live my life uh, so I can be happy and that I can yeah. be able to, to infect change uh, in others and to be able to be accepting of reality as it is. Mm-hmm. Two things that I'm certain I can change at any time. My attitude, which gets into a little bit of Victor Frankl kind of um, yeah, there you go. Uh, logo therapy, and also my attitude, or I'm sorry, my attitude and my sobriety date. 
two things that I can change at any time. One, of course, much better to change than the other. And, you know, that kind of sense of like, okay, well, what's my, you know, if I'm not going to, lack of acceptance oftentimes leads us to hopeless situations or reach for really, really uh, unhealthy situations when we don't feel like we have any options at all, which is why, you know, it leads into another conversation around why people who are in, you know, challenging circumstances, creating life changes can be so challenging because of, you know, the extra external demands that are, that can, that can be made. But um, yeah, changing, making change is not, is not easy. And so, yeah, being able to recognize what it is that we can change. Sometimes it might be as subtle as changing our attitude or our expectations towards something, which is kind of what is getting into the second half of the of that serenity prayer, where towards the end you mentioned, you know, let me be reasonably happy in this life and extremely, supremely happy with him forever in the next. Is that uh, it's kind of setting our expectations for happiness, you know, in my in my pleasure seeking, uh, you know, lifestyle that I that was active addiction. There was, I was always seeking more and more and more, and there was never, nothing was reasonable. There was never enough. And, um, you know, with living life, you know, per really the, the mission or the essence of the serenity prayer allows me to know and kind of hear the voice of God saying, you are enough, Scott, you are enough. And also allows me to look around and say, this is enough. And wow, you know, find gratitude in the things that are around me rather than wishing things were a little bit different. And, you know, that's, seen throughout the, the, that, that second stanza of the serenity prayer, you know, hardship is the pathway to peace. Boy, that can certainly make suffering seem a little bit more, you know, having some more reason behind whatever we might be suffering through. And, um, you know, knowing that there's peace on the other side and that there's supreme happiness ultimately in eternal life with him. Uh, as well. Yeah, I, I love the prayer. Thank you. You did a great job of summarizing. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Um, but it is beautiful in terms of just, like you said, expectation, um, being enough. I mean, I think that that, you know, Brene Brown, who I quote often in this podcast, speaks highly about scarcity and, and that being the, the key uh, to shame, to understanding shame is that when we when we believe that we are enough and we accept that, or when somebody tells that for us and, and we're able to receive empathy and compassion and love from others, um, then that that is the antidote to our shame, which I reiterate, I just think is so much at the core of what prevents people from really availing themselves to the help that is there. Um, and so we just want to encourage people um, to, to believe that and to, to really believe that. So Scott here, as we're, we're bringing things to a close here, what's so so what's next for uh, Catholic in Recovery? What's next for, for CIR? We are launching several new Catholic in Recovery groups in various parts of the country and actually in different, outside of the country as well. Awesome. Uh, bringing a group to New Orleans uh, soon as well as, yeah, well, different parts. The CatholicInRecovery.com, you'll find our full meeting directory as it's updated. Um, we're also going to be publishing a Catholic in Recovery workbook next year around this time. Um, the same publisher who published my book, The 12 Steps in the Sacraments. Ave Maria Press will be publishing our workbook, which will be a sacramental guide through the 12 steps. It's 20 sections, really walks one through the 12 steps while integrating Catholic tradition, prayer, sacraments. And that's going to also be then accompanied by a mobile app and a, a, and a platform on our a website platform where people can also then have a company, walk through some accompanying modules, video, testimonials that, um, that correspond with each of the sections, connect with others and, um, we had our first Catholic in Recovery retreat this summer in Wichita, Kansas, which was wonderful to have this in-person experience. We're expecting to have about six or seven of those next year in 2022, different parts of the country. And um, 
yeah, just seeing our community grow and, you know, much to do, but uh, one day at a time, you know, finding, finding joy in the mission and uh, in, in connection with the body of Christ coming together. It's been awesome. It's been Praise a wonderful gift for me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So if people are interested in joining a group or attending one of the retreats or resources, give me the website again. Yeah. Catholicandrecovery.com. Awesome. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Wonderful. Well, Scott, as uh, we wrap this, this interview up, uh, final question, ask all my first time guests, what gives you hope? Man, for me, what gives me hope? I've got three little kids at home and uh, I've got a three-year-old and a 15-month-old and a seven-week-old little boy, two girls and a boy. And, uh, you know, I also just uh, traveled back to my home state of Wisconsin for my grandmother's funeral, which was sad and kind of sudden. And, uh, you know, this kind of passing of life and, uh, you know, we're getting into this, the uh, Halloween season as well. It's kind of the end of the liturgical calendar where this is going to be something that we're focusing on. But, you know, seeing my kids and seeing a generation of, um, you know, just wonder and curiosity, uh, it gives me so much hope. Praise God. Wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. yes, our little ones certainly have the capacity to do that and being able to see, as you said, wonder and an excitement over every little thing and, and the newness of the world that sometimes we forget and overlook um, as absolutely something that that should be and could be hopeful. So, Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, God bless you and all the good work that you're doing. Uh, may the Lord continue to bless the, the win at your sales here as you guys keep bringing this out to, to the communities that need it. So thanks, mm-hmm. man. Thank you, Mario. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for sticking with me till the end. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode with Scott Weeman. And generally just want to say now is a wonderful opportunity just to pray for anybody who's struggling with addictions. And so, Lord, we just ask you please to bless uh, any people in our lives, whether it's ourselves or family members, Lord, that we know that are struggling with some form of addiction, whether it's alcohol or drug related or some type of compulsive behavior. Lord Jesus, we pray that your mercy may be with them, to guide them, to bless them, to to help them overcome whatever this challenge is, and to bless family members, Lord, to find that right balance between mercy and tough love, to be able to help them overcome this addiction, Lord. And we know that regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, we believe in your grace and your goodness and your ability to heal us and guide us and lead us towards holiness, regardless, again, regardless of where we find ourselves. So, amen. All right. Well, thank you listeners for for being with me. God bless you. I hope you guys have a great day. Take care.